Today's episode is sponsored by Zamelio. Their new game, Kingdom's Candy Monsters, is an engine-building game where you take on the role of a greedy villain determined to have the most candy. And the best way to do this is to purchase monsters, make them more powerful, and then unleash them into the kingdom in search of more candy. But there's a price to pay for this. In order for your monsters to collect the most candy, you have to feed them a steady diet of sugar cubes. So you must carefully balance what you spend on gaining more monsters and improving their abilities with being able to actually feed them. In Kingdom's Candy Monsters, you want to create the best sugar cube generating engine you can through your collection of monsters and abilities to thwart the other villains, also bent on candy domination. So check out Kingdom's Candy Monsters on Kickstarter today. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going on adventure, talking about what does it look like to design adventure games, and we're talking to Mike Gennade from Rock Commander Games. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, man, really excited to have you. you you've, you've designed some really cool, really fun, really adventuring, adventurous adventure games. Uh, Maximum Apocalypse, Set a Watch, Few in the Cursed. All three of these games have some really cool adventuring in them. Some of are a little bit more open world. You can kind of run around and do different things. Some not quite as open, but still lots of adventure. So I'm really just pumped to, to get your ideas, your, your design process. How do you bring these adventuring games to life? But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Um, yeah, my name is Mike Ganade. Uh, I am in my late 30s. Um, I have been a gamer my entire life. So whether it was video games or board games, um, I've been involved in both uh, frequently. Um, back when I was in middle school, I was into magic and Warhammer miniatures and painted them for a while. Um, but then sort of the big event in my life was that we moved across country. So we moved from like the East Coast to the West Coast when I was... Uh, we did it twice, so right before high school and then right after high school, and it really disrupted, um, you know, my circle of friends both times and what I was doing. So, uh, you know, adapting to new schools and new environments, I sort of switched over to video games, uh, and was really into video games forever until I was at a PAX East, I believe, and my feet were hurting and aching from walking around, sitting and standing up playing video games. And I wandered my way back to that airport hangar and sat down and played some board games that were that had showed their head there and really fell back in love with board games. So I transitioned a lot of the stuff I was doing um, in the video game space to board games after that. I sort of uh, did my first game, Brass Empire, on the side as sort of a Kickstarter on the side and then uh, got more serious about it with Maximum Apocalypse because it was sort of bigger than we were anticipating. And I was transitioning... Uh, from being, uh, you know, a computer IT guy um, to being a stay-at-home dad. So I sort of was started working on board game design and making games and publishing games while I was watching my uh, second my second daughter was born shortly after that Maximum Apocalypse campaign, um, and uh, you know I was I was transitioning to be like a stay-at-home dad anyway, so my wife could pursue her career. So that's sort of a quick a quick uh, overview of the journey so far. Yeah, very cool. And so 
All right, let's get into adventure games. Let's get a good little working definition. When someone says an adventure game, what does that mean to you? Like when you think adventure game, like what's your, like how do you define it? So uh, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear adventure is just like theme. Um, I would want the theme to be really strong. I would want to feel like the characters and world and world were all something I was interested in and also something I was going to learn about while I was playing. So, you know, um, comparing to a lot of like the Euro games out there that just sort of have like an abstract theme on top of it where you're like a farmer or colonizing an island or something, I would want the theme to be really strong so I can get into uh, the role playing, the adventure, whatever, that's the story of the game itself. You know, I think adventure has story to it. Um, I don't think, I think if, if adventure doesn't have story, it's not a very interesting adventure. So I think that's an important factor uh, when I think about adventure games. Yeah, how much of it is also like the goal of the game? Like with Agricola, it's hard to say, okay, this is, a, you know, yeah, I guess you could kind of twist it around and say, all right, if you're a character and you're running around doing all these things, and you're, but you're farming, okay, still the goal is not to go on an adventure. The goal is like to build a farm. And so like, how much of the goal, the end game goal, but maybe the, the win condition or losing condition even, how much of that does that play into the game as, you know, if it's going to be an adventure game? You know, that's a hard one because I can think of a lot of contradictions to uh, end game goals where I think the game is still adventuring and, and thematic and the goal might be points or the goal might be something like more abstract. So I don't think the end matters as much as the journey itself. So I would say that the end game objective doesn't matter too much, but the mechanics of what you're doing and how the game feels while you're playing it certainly matters. Okay, cool. And I like the way you you, you frame framed that. Is like it's the the way you get to the end game. You might just be scoring a bunch of points and trying to out you know out outperform all your other competitors and just have more points at the end. But you can still go on an adventure to get there. And I, and definitely there are some games that have some like Euro elements that aren't just win or loss. That aren't cooperative. That still have lots of adventuring elements in them. That aren't you know just defeat the bad guy and then you win. Then the adventure's over. It, it could also be well defeat the bad guy and do all these other things objective wise and you get a hundred points and you're, you know, the X player had 99. So you win. And so I think that's a good way to yeah, put it. Right. It's, it's the journey. Yeah. Have you thought at all about like the hero's journey or anything like narrative to kind of go into this? Um, I think the hero's journey. Um, so just going back to objectives, just sort of like to give you some examples of what I'm talking about is I played actually this weekend, one of the most thematic secret, like in its bones, it's a Euro game, but um, it didn't feel like a Euro game. Uh, it's a game called Vindication by Orange Nebula. And the setup of it is that you're a wretched scumbag who is thrown overboard and washes ashore on an island. And a companion, which is a car that you draw, awakens you and you go about exploring the island and becoming vindicated. Now, ultimately, all you're doing is increasing your honor as you play the game. So it's just a Euro point game. But just that setup and that theme and all the actions you're taking throughout the game uh, make it an incredibly thematic, uh, you know, adventure uh, in, in most cases, you know, and you know, vindication in that way is sort of similar to what Few and Curse will be when it comes out, which is the, you, you know, your goal in Few and Curse is to be the most infamous bounty hunter. And you do that by acquiring sort of victory points that we call grit, but there are narrative elements and what you're doing in the game is all highly thematic and based on the comic book. So it feels like an adventure, even though the objective is just to get points. Yeah, for sure. And I'm excited to kind of break down each game in just, in just a minute. So, all right, but go ahead. What were you going to say? But I was going to say, you know, so, so 
you know, that's why I don't think the objective matters too much because, you know, we then you do have highly thematic games like, you know, the sort of standard role-playing adventure game Dungeons and Dragons where you're doing all this mathy stuff on your on your character sheet, but really it's a storytelling game and your objectives are to finish the narrative that the dungeon master is providing you, right? So, um, you know, I, th I think I think the way it feels uh, and the journey is the, is the most important part. Yeah, for sure. Another great example, in my opinion, is Dead of Winter. If you talk to John Gilmore, one of the designers of the game, he says, "Oh, this is this is kind of a Euro game, but it plays out like an adventure game. But it, you know, the core mechanism is dice placement, you know, which is very Euroy in it in its normal state of being. And so, uh, but you get this really cool adventuring zombie apocalypse, you know, searching for items and story narrative driven stuff. Uh -huh. But at the end of the day, it's got a lot of Euro elements in it. And so, I think, yeah, you, you make a really good point. It's it's how do we get there? What, what's the journey along the way? To, uh, to kind of figure out, you know, the secrets of this world or accomplish different goals and things like that uh, along the adventure. Now, going back to the hero's journey, have you thought at all about that or kind of designing games based on either the hero's journey or the three-act structure? I mean, there's tons of different, like, you know, right. storytelling methods. Anything on, on that in that regard? I would never say I've approached it like I would when I, you know, would write a story from from the act or, you know, like prologue and... and um you know, climax and, and hero's journey and everything like that. Um, so much of what I like about games, because they're not books and they're not films, um, they are interactive and they're the, the players themselves are more part of the game than, you know, a viewer of a movie or a reader of a book. Um, that a lot of the storytelling and adventuring that I like to put in my games is, is, is more emergent. Um, and it's more a story you're going to create with your friends that you're going to go back and say, Hey man, remember uh, when this happened? Um, and, and I've seen that happen in front of me. I mean, one of my favorite uh, sort of emergent stories of, you know, one of my, my favorite personal uh, achievements as a game designer was when I took Maximum Apocalypse up to Boston and I went to their like game makers meetup before a PAX East and I had a bunch of people play the game uh, play a scenario, and they they some of their party died along along their journey, um, but near the end of their journey they were very close to winning, uh, and they were about to get to the van and escape and accomplish the mission objective, but uh, one of their one of the players like the fireman like ran in took all the monsters off of them and died, and died on the van tile they had to get to to escape, and everyone as they were getting ready to complete the mission started chanting corpse in the van corpse in the van because they were talking about how the fireman had saved them all and he had you know they were going to give him a proper burial and put him in the van so as they were each player was taking their subsequent turn getting to the end of the game uh they were starting to chant like corpse in the van they sort of raised up this other player this other play tester and like made him the hero of the story even though ultimately by dying you know based on the rules of the game quote um, they they lost that mission, you know, or it wasn't the most efficient win of that you know, mission. Um, it still felt like a win, and it was still an enjoyable experience. And you know, they created a very memorable moment for me as a game designer watching them play, just with the way they talked about it and the way they finished it. Yeah, that's awesome. And one thing to always note about these kinds of games is that players don't remember it in the form of mechanisms. They remember it in the form of stories. You know, they didn't, the guys, they, they didn't say, hey, remember that time I rolled a six? 
Like, right. No. Exactly. Remember that, yeah. remember the time I killed all those zombies with my axe, you know, and I was a firefighter. Like that's how they, they talk in story. And so like how in your, your adventure game, your story game, can you bring those moments to life to give players as many opportunities to have those cool story moments as possible and, and just using the mechanisms as a supporting scaffolding just to get there. Right. And so I think that's something really to think about when you're designing an adventure game. Don't let the mechanisms overpower the story, right? Like how, how do the mechanisms support the story and, and support these oppor- opportunities to have some cool, uh, memorable moments for the people at the table? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. I would say every game's different. Um, I would say that certainly having an element of randomization or luck or, uh, something like that, um, certainly creates potential exciting moments to happen. Um, that can be more memorable. Um, I mean, that's something when you talk about like Euro games versus Ameritrash and all the different genres of, of board games, you know, Euro games tend to be uh, lack a lot of randomization and luck um, because they're so point focused and so tight. Um, and my issue with some Euro games, you know, not all because they don't all do this, but one of the issues you can run into is it just becomes a mech, you know, just becomes a machine where you're going into it, before you've even sat down and played it, you may know a strategy that you know or like or have won before, and nothing anybody can do uh, while you're playing um, or anything that the game can throw at you can change your strategy from being the optimal strategy. So basically, why bother playing? Because you're just going, you're just going through the motions. You know exactly what you're going to do. You're just going to build your engine, pump out these points, and do it a certain way. So you win, and then the game's over. Um, I, I don't like games like that. Um, I like games where there is some form of unexpected thing that can happen. And while I don't like randomization to take hold where it just feels random and skill isn't involved, I do think that you need a certain element of randomization uh, to create you know, memorable moments and exciting moments and variability. Um, so that's something I definitely keep in mind. And it's, I think it's a delicate balance no matter what kind of game you're making. Um, that you need to have, whether it's, whether it's dice rolls, you know, where some outcome of the dice is going to be the exciting thing or whether, um, a deck of cards and the, the order of the cards come out can, can create that excitement or, or whatever it is. Um, there, there needs to be, I think that that needs to be an element because that is an element that can create the storytelling and the excitement uh, in a game and, and memorable moments. Yeah, definitely. Now, why do you think so many people are drawn to these games, you know, every year, tons of the adventure games come out. What is it that keeps bringing people back? I mean, for me personally, um, I like to, I mean, think about it when you're watching a TV show, you know, you can watch a serial, like fluffy junk food TV show about cops, you know, on a network television show and you're going to watch it and it's fine. It's entertaining, but ultimately when you leave it, there's nothing, it doesn't leave you with anything, right? It just sort of, you're being entertained while you're watching it for those 40 minutes to an hour. And then when it's over, it's over. You don't think twice about it. You know, a good movie or a good, a good uh, TV show will suck you in, you know, and you'll get really into the world, guessing what's going to happen to the characters. Um, you know, look at like the Game of Thrones phenomenon. You know, it's a very classic fantasy theme, which is a very classic adventure game theme. And I think part of its success was that everyone was not only wrapped up into all the treachery and, and cliffhangers and exciting things that happened uh, and unexpected story elements that happened. They also were engrossed in like the world 
And the way that show opens up by showing you a map of the world and flying you all around to give you a context to the world, I think is very, like, pulls you in. Um, and it's very similar to setting out a board that looks very thematic with a bunch of different interesting locations on it, you know, when you're playing a board game. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the main things that draws people in is that sense of wonder, the curiosity, the the discovery, mm-hmm. you know, exploration. What's going to happen if you've got this giant stack of event cards? Hey, and you never you never know what's going to happen. That was one great thing about Dead of Winter and, and a lot of other these kinds of games is like you never know when you turn over a card, the next thing is going to happen. And it might be kind of crazy and it might put you in a weird position. It might make you lose the game, might help you win the game. And so it's a lot of that discovery and exploration. Same with, you know, TV shows like Game of Thrones. What's going to happen next? And getting people to continue to watch and Netflix Netflix has done a great job of, of setting up their shows so that people binge watch and they'll leave every episode off in such a way that you want to watch the next one. And I think adventure games, when done well, kind of accomplish the same thing, right? They, they want uh, they get people to want to turn over that next card, to move to that next place, to see what's, what's there, to see what cool weapon they could find if they beat oh, yeah, that for next sure. bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like finding a good loot item, like, you know, a random card draw that's like an amazing thing or the, the exact card you need to get you out of the jam you're in is all exciting, memorable stuff for sure. Yeah, and this is something the uh, the legacy style games really figured out with opening up little packages or little envelopes, little packets of, of new things. People just love, they get that endorphin rush. It, there's, I need to talk to somebody about the psychology of legacy games because there's so much that goes into just you know opening a new little box and how good it makes you feel and how you want to do that. And it kind of pushes or incentivizes players to do those things. Uh, and I want to get back into incentives and just say, but before I get into that, why did you personally, like what really made you want to design these style of games? Um, well, I wouldn't say that I went into it thinking, you know, I'm going to make adventure games. I didn't think about it that, uh, I just thought these are the type of games I like to play. These are the type of games I want to make. Um, so, I mean, going to, going into each, it, it's hard to sort of go into all the adventure games and say what was the common thread, because I don't know if there was one. But um, I could certainly talk about the inspiration and sort of start of any particular game. You know, I, they, they all are different, sort of how you start working on them. Um, I mean, in general, I would say that I do like highly thematic games. Um, I want to I wanna get really into what, is going on um, and I want to be drawn into it. So um, I, I think it lends itself to making adventure games, but I mean, ultimately I just go about, I, I just try to make games that I want to play. Um, and I have, uh, I have wide range of tastes. Um, so, you know, we do have different things. Uh, you know, we have competitive deck builders that are very head to head and we have, um, you know, adventure games and cooperative games and, you know, we've got other stuff in the works that's, that's less about theme and more about just being competitive and getting into it from that way, from being a you know, competitor and wanting to win the game. Um, that can draw me in just as much as a story can. So I wouldn't say I always go into it thinking I'm going to make a story for the game. I just try to think about uh, mechanics and theme and how they tie together strongly. And then from there, uh, if it makes sense, obviously I want to I want to add in emergent storytelling and, and these memorable moments from a gameplay perspective. Gotcha. Well, let's break down some of those games. You know, really your, your main three as far as adventuring, Maximum Apocalypse, Set of Watch, and Few and the Cursed. Well, let's break down kind of the design process for each of them, each one of those just kind of one by one. Tell me about Maximum Apocalypse, where the idea came from, the early stages, and then kind of how it evolved into this wide-spanning, you know, giant, 
you know, tons of different scenarios, adventuring style games. Yeah, well, Maximum Apocalypse definitely came out of my fandom for like everything post-apocalyptic, whether it's like Fallout, the video game franchise, or Walking Dead on television, or like the Book of Eli movie, or, you know, any anything where the human race is sort of put uh, at an extinction risk, you know. I've always liked those movies. I've always made an effort to see those movies and watch those television shows. So um, when I went to design my second game, I wanted to do something different than I had done with Brass Empire. And I was watching it. It was at a point in time where I was watching a bunch of TV shows and movies about post-apocalyptic things. And I sort of thought to myself, hmm, I don't think there's a lot of post-apocalyptic games out there. Let me, and it started in Excel. I literally just opened an Excel file and said, what apocalypses, like, could there be in a game? Like, if you were to put all these apocalypse, post-apocalyptic genres and themes and things that happen, you know, like, just make a list, you know? So it's like Terminator, you know, Rise of the Robots, Machines, you know, Alien Invasions, Zombies. You know, I just started making a list, literally just a brain dump of, of everything that was there. And uh, the list was quite long, so I felt like, oh my gosh, there's a ton of stuff here. And that idea was sort of seeded in my mind, so then as I continued watching these shows and TV shows, I started sort of making mental notes about uh, what type of stuff was in there. And my intention was actually originally just to make a card game. I wanted to make a cooperative card game. Uh, where all the stuff that happened and storytelling and monsters and all the stuff your character did was just contained on cards. So it would be really portable. You could throw it in your backpack and sort of bring it with you and 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 play. Uh, and obviously it changed. Uh, the game evolved beyond that. But but originally the idea was just sort of, it was just out of this fandom and uh, of all these genres. And as I was watching shows and taking my dog for a walk and things like that, I would just think of stuff and be like, you know, an idea that came after that was like, oh, each character will be sort of like an archetype, you know, because you see these shows, and you always have like the archetype where you have like this, the everyman and like, you know, in, in Walking Dead, you've got like Rick Grimes, who's like a policeman who wakes up and is uh, the zombie apocalypse has happened, which is actually similar to 28 Days Later, the movie as well. And I just started creating these archetypes and creating decks and cards and like actions that those people could do and what they would be good at. And just started developing the game from there. But the impetus of the idea was really just out of, um, you know, my love of the genre. And, you know, then as I developed and worked on the game, I just tried to make sure that I was allowing the sort of narrative and storytelling aspects of the shows and movies and everything that I liked to be present in the game or exist in some way, depending on how people played it. Yeah, and so what was your process of creating the adventure in that game? Because in that one, you've got different tiles, you got to move your, your character around, and you're trying to find stuff and then get back to the van. You know, But every scenario is a little bit different. So tell me how you kind of really created the adventure system. Yeah, so I, I definitely did get to a point where I thought about it as, as a system. Um, um, I didn't want to restrict players uh, with overly complex rule books or explicit map uh you know, map drawings with how to set up the tiles. I wanted people to be able to explore and set up map tiles however they wanted um, and and make it harder or easier or however um, they wanted by just sort of randomizing their tiles. 
I wanted them, I wanted to spark their imagination. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to show people a, a square grid of the tiles because then everyone would create a square grid. I wanted people to say, oh, it just says randomly connect these tiles. They just need to be adjacent. And people's imaginations to sort of be triggered to, to, to create the maps. Um, so that's one thing I consciously did. Um, and as far as like narrative and adventuring goes, uh, you know, I, I had all these different apocalypses and I sort of said, okay, again, to sort of ignite that creativity inside the player, I, each apocalypse is sort of its own mini campaign, if you will, or thematic, since they're so thematically different, um, you know, the, you, they are modular. You pick the apocalypse you're going to face. So if you're going to play zombies, you're going to play zombies. If you're going to play alien invasion, you're going to play alien invasion. And so with each mission, I have, you know, not even a paragraph. I'd say like two to three sentences, sort of setting up a loose narrative structure of the three or so missions that that uh, the three or the three or four scenarios or missions or different games you can play within each apocalypse. There's a very loose narrative structure um, throughout the objectives you're completing. So you know, the example is the zombie apocalypse. The first thing you have to do is you hear that there's a scientist who knows something about the zombie apocalypse. So you've got to save him in mission one. In mission two, the scientist tells you, I need samples of zombies. So you need to kill them and like take their body parts for me to study. And then the third mission in the zombie apocalypse is sort of the, the scientist is just can, thinks he can discover a cure. You need to sort of escort him to these locations um, to, to create the cure and test it. So it sort of creates a loose narrative structure if you play through all, all three missions of the zombie apocalypse of a story that you're sort of creating with your friends. Um, but it's not like I wrote, uh, you know, paragraphs of text and stuff. It's, it's very much just a few sentences to give you some context to what you're doing. And then hopefully from there, uh, your adventure in the game is sort of filling in those gaps. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I've found... To, to be the case often is that people's imagination is way better than I would, than anything I would have come up with to write down as a little narrative thing. And so a lot of times less is more, whether it's just through flavor text or just through a couple sentences and kind of, you know, framing the scenario of saying, okay, there's a scientist and you need to escort him back and you can add a little bit of flavor in there, but then the players in their own imagination will come up with, with far better, far more interesting uh, things that are going on than anything I could have uh, given to them. Yeah. They'll create whole backstories for why they're pulled up here and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So it's definitely something I tried to do with Maxim specifically. Yeah. All right. Let's change gears just a little bit and talk about set a watch. Now this game's a little bit, uh, well, it's very different from Maximum Apocalypse. It's more on rails, but at the same time, there's a lot of venturing kind of things going on. So tell me about that game, and then let's get into that game's adventure system. Sure. So Set a Watch is different, too, because, you know, I helped develop it, and I certainly designed elements of the game, but it's actually a game I found here in Philadelphia going to our Game Makers Guild of Philadelphia meetups. So Set a Watch, um, you know, when I played it in its first, in its early iterations, was simply a line of monsters that you had to defeat over nine rounds uh, with three abilities per character. Um, and, you know, I play tested it and it stuck with me for whatever reason, uh, the mechanics uh, feeling like I was the adventurer with these abilities and using my dice to activate abilities and going through this line of monsters. Um, you know, and I mean, the designer Todd told us, you know, the idea is that you're setting watch at camp and these You've got to get through all these monsters that are coming to get you, you know, and there's nine rounds. Um, so 
um, when we talked about it and I eventually signed the game and started, Todd and I started working together to develop the game and release it, uh, some of the things I wanted to add to make it feel even more like an adventure was instead of just counting nine rounds, which literally during play tests early on, it was just like we used tally marks to go, okay, we're at round one, round two, round three. Um, I wanted to, you know, I, I had this idea of creating the location deck where you're going from place to place and you're journeying through a land, visiting these locations and setting up camp outside those locations. That's what the rounds are. So I gave it some thematic, uh, you know, some, some, some thematic context to make it feel more like an adventure. Um, and then, um, but I mean, as far as facing the creatures and the mechanics of, of, of feeling like an adventurer, uh, feeling like you were a rogue or something. I mean, Todd always had that with the ability cards and that's what, that always drew me in. Um, but the, un the unhallowed cards, making these bigger, badder creatures and journeying from location to location and tending to camp, uh, while you rest are all some of the things that I helped develop while, while we worked on the game. Yeah, and I love how just that small change of you know taking it from because you could have easily done a round tracker yeah, little course. board and go one two three four, but turning it into actual locations you know makes you feel a little bit more like you're actually on a journey, like you're going places, like you're actually on an adventure, and it also allows you to do some interesting things mechanically because now if you have location cards, you can have different events that happen, you can have different abilities, different exactly right. positive gains or negative losses or things happen, and you could have thirty different locations and you're only going to have nine per game, so you add the add to the replayability so just that one little change does a great deal for the game as a whole yeah plus i mean again it sets up those moments we've been talking about earlier which is oh man remember when we barely made it through that swamp or whatever like that swamp sucks then next time you play it's like oh the swamp again like we gotta we gotta check the map and make sure we don't go to the swamp you know so you can create those moments where uh those memorable moments when you're playing with your friends too i think i think it's more um but, I mean, Todd's game always had that, like, the combo system. As far as the combat storytelling goes, like, he always had the sweet, like, combos, interactions between players where it's like, oh, you know, Gabe, you're the wizard. Like, polymorph that, uh, polymorph that dragon into, a, into an eagle. And then I'm, I'm going to tame that eagle as a beastmaster, you know. And then not only do you change the creature in the line from a big, scary dragon to an to a eagle, but then I tame the eagle and I can use it against the line as the beastmaster. And having that, uh, you know, having that interaction between players, um, you know, is, is, is also a, a fun adventuring storytelling thing that happens as you're playing the game. Because there are no turns in Set of Watch, you know, you're just sort of sitting around collaborating and talking through a problem together. Um, so it lends itself to, to, to some of that emergent storytelling and, and, and working together stuff as well. Yeah, for sure. And going back to your point about the swamp, you know, people don't say, hey, remember in round two when we did this thing? Exactly. Well, they say, hey, remember in the swamp when this thing happened? And, and so that's one way for a game to kind of set right. itself apart and make and it that, more. And that's a difference between mechanics and like theme and, and design and development because the game would 100% work just with like, instead of cards, you have a dial that counts up to nine, right? You can have that as well, just not as exciting. Yeah, and I've seen other games use something like chapters. They'll say, okay, in chapter one, these things are happening because that automatically makes it more of a story because it's it's speaking in story language. So I feel like mm -hmm. just changing vocabulary, just changing little things, you can make the game feel more adventurous uh, in its nature. Anything else you can think of right now that, that kind of does that? The location cards instead of a round marker. You know, anything else that you've used or done? Well, I mean, um, 
you know, if, if we jump to few and curse, there's sort of two things I can think of that I thought lend itself to like telling the story. Okay, let's um, let's give me a quick overview of that game, and then let's get get into it. And then and then that way we'll touch on all the games, and we can go on to other stuff too. Um, yeah. So, uh, few and curse uh, is sort of a different beast because it's not something I created from scratch. It's actually a collaboration with. It's a comic book originally, so it's a true narrative thing that has a real story in it. Um, it's uh, as a graphic novel comic book, and it was something I I made a game for. So. The world of the comic book, obviously, I was drawn to and is awesome um, in and of itself. And basically, the, the setup of the comic book is 90 years ago, uh, all, most of the water on Earth just evaporated. And it was a supernatural event, and sort of the dark arts and the supernatural became real. So in order to survive, humans started delving into the dark arts. And if you delve into the dark arts too much, you can become cursed and you can become sort of a horrific beast, whether it's transforming into a, you know, human-sized crow that kidnaps children, or, you know, Wendigo, or zombies, or demons, you know, that is sort of the setup of the comic book. So, really cool, thematically. Uh, Obviously, I was drawn to that and thought, man, that would make a cool game. Um, And some of the things I did to make that theme and story and adventure come through the comic book is an adventure book you know it's you're the main hero of the game and you're chasing down Kirches and you follow her while she's doing that adventure um one of the things i did for the game is first since it's a comic book i decided to make it a deck builder because every card that you play down to generate resources again it's just it's a boring thing that games do right like get to attack get to movement you know move two spaces that stuff uh, to give that stuff more thematic context is I designed the cards to be sort of panels of a comic book and you play them in whatever order you want and you can sort of place them down next to each other. And it almost feels like you're reading a comic book from panel to panel. You know, obviously when you're generating movement, it has a picture of a character like sprinting and running. Um, so it feels like you're, you know, that's something that's happening in the comic book panel. Um, and again, to give that adventure feel, um, and then the other big thing in that game, uh, again, Few and Curse is just about generating victory points. So mechanically, there's not a lot of interesting things from a narrative side going on. But despite all that, I think it's highly thematic and feels very much like an adventure because how you get those victory points are all very thematic things. So it feels like a journey. So, um, you know, one of the things you do is when you are outside of the city, just on a space, uh, you you have encounter cards and you can read these encounter cards where again it's not paragraphs of text it's not quite as long as those dead of winter cards which we talked about earlier but we do have a lot of encounter cards that either give you sort of a panoramic scene from the comic book that'll sort of give you some context and story with that or if you're on sort of one of the more standard boring locations we give you about two to three sentences of context of some of the stuff that can happen in the world so again, ultimately, how you deal with those encounter cards is just choosing what you're doing um, based on what happened. You know, you can choose one or two, three, two or three things. Um, but it's 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 giving you some context and sucking you into the world because instead of saying, "Hey, do you want to get two, uh, two currency, two money, or two attack?" it's saying something like, "Oh, there's a there's a." A, a group of travelers and their wagons broken down, you know, are you going to rob them? Um, you know, and then you get, you steal their money and you get two, two money, or are you going to protect them? 
um, and get two more attack and they're going to teach you some fighting techniques or something for the future. Um, so just by giving those sort of interactions some context, you know, it sucks you into the role a little bit more as well as far as feeling like an adventure versus feeling like, you know, a mechanical going through the motions type thing. Yeah, definitely. And this is what creates something I talk to my English students all the time about when they're when they're writing stories. And it's verisimilitude. It's it's a world that feels real, even though you know that few and cursed is not real, that there are no dark arts and there, you know, people aren't doing all these things and getting cursed. Like you know you're playing a game, you know it's you know, you know it's fake. But at the same time, when you have story elements like like what you're talking about, okay, these people uh, and their wagon broke down and now you have these choices, these options, okay, that's creating a real world. That, that, that feels immersive, even though it really boils down to, do you want some currency or do you want some extra attack? Right. Like if you're, if you're, if you're just playing it to win a game, you can take all the theme away and just be like, I care about this resource icon thing, you know, and I'm working towards that. But that's, in my opinion, the fun of the game isn't just scoring more points and winning. It's, it's uh, having those, those elements, you know, where you actually care about what you're doing and maybe even, Maybe even you care so much about the story or drawn so much into the theme that you choose something that maybe isn't the optimal thing because, you know, for you to win the game, quote unquote, because it feels better or morally it's more what you align the character with or whatever. Because one of the other things that Few and Curse does, too, is it you, you have a player board and every time you do stuff in the game, you push your curse up. You know, you push the dark arts up and down and you can become cursed. And your character card can flip over and become a horrific monster. So, you know, you can be an evil guy and want to and play it evil and, and win as evil or good. But, you know, I, I've certainly watched players play test the game and be like, well, I don't want to be a cursed scum gag. I want to be like a good hero. And, you know, they're constantly worried about, you know, playing that good versus bad, you know, light versus dark angle. And, and just that choice doesn't become just a choice of am I doing this for this effect to win or doing this for this effect to win or or it becomes you start internalizing and saying well do I want to is my guy a good guy or a bad guy do I want it to be dark or light am I going to take advantage of these poor travelers and exploit them or am I going to try to protect them and you give the player these opportunities to again create their own story you know while they're playing the game yeah, absolutely. And again, it makes it feel real. Exactly. And so and so let's get into the incentives. So you just talked about, you know, some incentives in that game where okay, if I'm a player that wants to be a good guy, then I'm going to be real careful of my cursed track and things like that. What's some other incentives you you've put into your games or, or found that work really well to really push the adventure along? Um, well, that certainly was a good example. <laughs> um, other incentives to push the journey along. I mean, Maximum Apocalypse, um, you know, it is sort of all about being a sandbox and giving you, you know, it's like an action economy. So it's like you have four actions. You can do whatever you want. So uh, by, by, by sort of opening it up that way, again, I was trying to ignite the imagination of players. And then, you know, they all, they, every character has powerful cards, uh, movement, weapons that they can equip. And, uh, there's all these things working against you, working against all the players. You know, it's post-apocalyptic. You start, you're starving to death. Every turn you take, you get hungrier and hungrier. So you always need to be scavenging for more supplies. Um, there's always monsters and, and threats looming out there that you need to fight, or they'll kill you and attack you, and you'll lose health. You have your mission objective that you need to accomplish. You have fuel that you need to find for your van to escape, and 
because you're running out of gas. So there's all these sort of narrative threats um, and you're incentivized to do all these things, but ultimately you don't have enough actions to do all these things. So um, it's really about prioritizing. Uh, it's like, it, it sort of gives you that feeling, again, going back to the feeling, it gives you that feeling of, man, we're in deep trouble. Um, what is the most pressing problem that we have right now that I can work on, you know, as a group? Or like, how can I help the group the most right now? Yes, we need, we need food because we're starving. Yes, we need gas to escape. But we can worry about those things later because right now I've got a huge uh, zombie horde attached to me that's going to deal me like 10 damage on this turn, you know? So I've got to use my guns and weapons and equip some guns and reload my weapons to deal with that before we even worry about whether we starve to death or not. So um, that's, that's one of the incentives I gave to Maximum Apocalypse was that I guess it's not so much of an incentive as it's just there's like all these different threats. Um, so the incentive is to sort of work on what you think is the most pressing threat at the time. Um, and, and, and how you evaluate that is sort of subjective. Um, so that's, there's a bunch of interesting decisions that I think come out of that. Yeah, for sure. And something I learned from old school adventure game Legends of Andor is to use time as an incentive, right? So you give the player only a certain amount of time to accomplish whatever goals and objectives and things are. And then that puts them in a bind of always having to make tense decisions. It's like, okay, I really want to go over here and get this treasure chest, but it's going to cost me time. And I don't know if it's going to be worth it for the, the sword or the scroll or right, whatever exactly the potion right. that I'm going to get. And so that gives them interesting choices. Because one thing I found in, in some solo games that I've been designing uh, called Hunted is if you don't give players a really strict time system, a lot of times they'll just kind of wander around and dilly dally and just do whatever. And they will try to min max every single thing and get all the things and power up their character all yep. the way up before they actually go and do the game. And I think that's one, one issue. A lot of video games, open world video games have, they'll say, okay, here's the big picture story. This terrible thing is happening. And the character and the player's like, yeah, but I'm going to go over here and grind for 12 hours and get yeah, my character up to level do like 50. Every, I'm going to do like every side quest because yeah, uh, right. the, the, there is no real timer because unless I do the yeah. next quest in order, nothing progresses, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it kind of breaks the verisimilitude. It breaks the, the realness, the feeling of reality. I, that's why I, I love the new Zelda game, Breath of the Wild, because literally from like minute one, you can go fight the main bad guy and you could potentially beat him and win the game. Like you could beat the game in like an hour if you want to, because it's right there and available. Whereas most of the time, open world games, you're, you're like you're saying, you have to go through quest one, quest two, quest three, all the way to quest 50. And you can do all the side quests in between because the bad guy's going to wait for you. He's, he's going to be nice. He's going to, you know, be patient. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I don't like, I definitely don't want uh, stuff where people are just sitting around min-maxing min stuff. And uh, that's, that's not interesting to me. So having incentives and stuff to like move, move the game forward, I think is an important thing, especially in board games. Um, it's funny that you say you're designing a solo game because one of the things that I didn't even know about when I sort of started this was, how big solo games are and maximum apocalypse despite my disregard for solo gamers really at first um it, it is quite popular with solo gamers because it creates all these moments and um you know we've since amended that by having uh we released like an allies expansion so you could play the game truly solo um because the numbers just didn't work it wasn't like you couldn't do it, but you need at least two characters just so you have the inventory space to complete the missions. Um, so the first way people played solo was they just controlled two characters. 
and then we eventually addressed it with with these allies that could start following you and they could carry stuff for you, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that I'm that I'm working on, you know, it's when you when you design a game and work on a game, you sort of go into it knowing it's going to be like a two to three year process to actually get the game. It's like a two year process to Kickstarter, a three year process till people can actually play the game. And um, you know, I'm working on sort of a spiritual successor to Maximum Apocalypse, and Part of the reason it's a spiritual successor and not just an expansion is because to correct my mistake with solo ability, I really needed to make things that, you know, go back to the start and sort of make things that would be incompatible with the current system as it is and redesign some base things in the system. So that's one of the things I'm, that I'm personally working on sort of behind closed doors that I'm really excited about. And, it, and it's because I want to address the, the solo player and, and make a really compelling story and adventure. Uh, for even one player, you know, make sure it's balanced and scalable, regardless of how many players you have. Yeah, very cool. I started designing soul games out of necessity. I hear, you know, living in Honduras, I don't have access to a ton of different uh, right. friends to play games with. And I was like, well, I'll just start playing games and designing games just for me. And then I fell down the rabbit hole and, and found out kind of like you did, that it's a humongous community out there uh, of just people who love good games and they want to be able to play it by themselves for all sorts of different reasons. You know, a lot of people like to read books. They like to play video games by themselves. And for the same thing, they want to go on an adventure. They want to feel immersed in a story. And even if they don't have anybody else uh, to do it with. And so, yeah, that, that's awesome that you're, you're designing games going forward that are going to address that community because they're, they love games, man. Yeah, and so sure. It's also just good business at this point in, in the industry of, of having a one to four player game, as opposed to just two to four, or two to five. Yep. Now going back into, uh, the adventure style games. Tell me about the challenge system. So, you know, a lot of video games struggle because if you, if you're an open world game and on an adventure and you get outside of where maybe you're supposed to be and you're level five, well, all of a sudden you find level 55 monsters and they breathe on you and they kill you. Right. And so maybe the challenge system there is, is maybe out of balance and maybe you shouldn't have whatever, but like, how do you do it in a board game so that players can go all sorts of different places? You know, they can feel like they have a kind of open world freedom to do things but they're not going to just be decimated if they get accidentally into the wrong place. Like, how do you, how do you address that? Yeah. Well, um, in maximum apocalypse, it's very modular and basically each apocalypse has a loose difficulty, um, sort of associated with it. So, you know, zombies are slow and dumb. So I always went about making them the easiest monster set. So, um, you know, on each mission, basically with what you have to accomplish and which, which apocalypse you're playing, we have sort of a, a guesstimate on difficulty level, whether it's very easy, easy, you know, normal, hard, very hard, um, et cetera. Um, once you get up into the hard and challenging stuff, um, I think, at least with Maximum Apocalypse, it sort of becomes a matter of taste, a matter of, of what stuff do you catches you by surprise and what stuff do you have a hard time dealing with, as opposed to some of the harder apocalypses, you know, aren't it's hard to say if one is particularly harder than the other. Um, although Cthulhu is rough. Um, so in that game, you sort of, since it's cooperative, you sort of have a situation where players can sit around and say, well, how much of a challenge do we want? And let's, um, let, yeah, we want a real challenge, you know, like, well, let's, let's pick this hard set and let's try to beat this one. Um, so, so that's what's nice about Maxim is you could just sort of decide. Um, in Set a Watch, which is also cooperative, we have these summon cards that show up and they bring in the big, bad, uh, big monsters. And then even after you kill them, they go in the discard pile and they can show up. They're then permanently added to the deck, which is shuffled a few times during the course of the game. So 
in set a watch, again, you get to sort of pick the difficulty level. Um, again, your players aren't changing. Um, you know, they're not evolving. It's there's no experience system like there are in some video games where, you know, you start at level five and you're gonna get up to level 55. Um, what's gonna change is your skill. So in those games, you sort of pick how many times. Maybe it's based on how many times you played the game or whatever. But you sort of pick how difficult you want that particular cooperative session to be. Uh, and you can add summon cards, you know, into the creature deck for for set of watch. And then in Few and Cursed, even though it's an adventure game, it's head-to-head. So um, that one, your character does evolve a little bit more. So um, what we do is we have a mechanic where when your deck, you know, it's a deck builder, so your deck starts pretty small. When your deck is shuffled, you return to this town in the center of the map. So as you play and build your deck and build your character, you can actually adventure out of the town longer and longer. And you're going to be able to generate more and more attack to get the bigger and bigger monsters. Um, so that's in few and curse. That's sort of how we address the challenge, the challenge ramp up or your character evolving. So it all depends on the game. They're all different. Yeah, those are some really cool ways to do it. One way I've found recently is is actually kind of something that I've kind of borrowed from Index Card RPG, which is kind of a streamlined version of, of Dungeon Dragons. And in that game, you don't level up. Like your character doesn't go from level one to level two to level three. You, you you get better as a character through loot, through finding items and weapons and things like that. Right. And so I'm, I'm working on an adventure game where you don't level up as a character, but you find cooler and cooler stuff along the way. But that stuff is finite. It might break. You might It might only be one-time use. It, it might only have a certain number of shots or a certain number of times you can use it. And so that gives players interesting ideas or, or interesting choices. When am I going to use this thing? Am I going to hold off and only use this when I get to the boss monster? Or do I need to use it right now because I'm about to die and I'm not even going to make it to the boss? And so, but it's, it's fine. And then there's some monsters, you know, it might like uh, kind of like a rust monster where if it touches certain things, if it, if it attacks you and hits you, then you have to discard an item. Mm-hmm. Well, I just found this really cool sword and now I don't have it anymore. You know, but it kind of creates these interesting story moments through loot and through items as opposed to just saying, okay, now I'm at level two, therefore I get this new ability. It's like, well, well that's <laughs> it doesn't feel very adventurous to do that. It, it's kind of interesting how video games do that. It's like, okay, you're at level four now, whatever that means. That's just an arbitrary number we decided. And now you get access to fireball. It's like, yeah, but why? How did I learn that? Did I just magically all of a sudden know how to do that? And, and so it's interesting how sometimes systems become a little odd in the way that they, they kind of give characters new things as opposed to them doing it themselves or finding things or, or actually completing a goal or an objective to actually gain or actually earn that cool new ability, that cool new skill or that cool new weapon. Yeah. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because obviously there is loot and items in Maxim Apocalypse. We call it gear. And in Few and Cursed, you can buy items from the shop, which make you better. And this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but there is loot coming to set a watch as well in a future expansion. So uh, I completely agree with you on the item and loot thing as well. Yeah, very cool. Now, now going back to like luck versus skill, how do you balance that out? Because you want to have enough luck, like we were talking about earlier, where you have these cool moments where, where you're, you know, it's always up to the dice, at, you know, to a certain degree. But at the same time, you want players to feel like they have agency and they you know, can control things and mitigate things. How do you balance those two things? Um, uh, well, a lot of my games don't have dice. So the one that does is set a watch. So the way we mitigate dice rolling and set a watch is you roll your dice before you make any decisions at the start of the round. So, uh, you know, instead of watch, there's four adventurers and you've got a line puzzle you have to solve by, by using your dice as attack dice. Um, 
to defeat monsters in a, in a line. Um, so what you get to do is you get to roll your dice first. So if you roll really poorly, uh, the only three players actually go to the combat section and one person rests and tends to camp with some dice placement. So maybe if you roll really, roll, roll really poorly, um, you go to camp. But it's our choice. So even though it was, you know, luck, the dice rolling is complete luck. What the numbers that we all have is luck-based. But then from that luck and from that experience, we then get to make choices and make educated decisions. Um, then it feels like instead of the dice beating us in the game, you know, we're, we're losing the game ourselves based on our choices. Um, so, you know, maybe you have low dice, so I send you to camp to rest, and the rest of us battle because we have higher dice. And another thing we do instead of watch with dice rolling is that even your one that you roll uh, is really powerful because you can use a dice to activate your ability. So you have all these ability cards, and, and based on your skill and how well you're doing in the game, uh, your ability cards are also your health. So as you take damage and perform poorly, you will lose abilities. And as you, if you're performing well, you can keep those abilities up and refresh longer, and you can use dice to activate them. Uh, and they'll and they and they can they, you know they they basically all are super powerful things that you can do to manipulate the line and kill monsters in the line without direct attacking them with your dice. Um, so that's 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 one way you can sort of have luck and chance in a game, but but mitigate that luck by by giving players choices based on based on the luck outcome of what happens. Um, you know, similarly, like, you know, in Few and Curse, when you go to a location and you have the encounter phase, you know, you're, you're, you're dealt a random encounter. Um, but, uh, but what you did, but, but each encounter, the encounter doesn't just happen to you, right? It's not just a lucky thing where it's this bad thing happened to me, uh, lose X resource. Uh, every encounter in Few and Curse gives you a choice. So even though it is lucky and some have better outcomes than others, um, you're given choices and you're given choices on what you want to spend, what cards you want to discard um, to, to resolve each encounter. Um, you know, so again, that there is luck, but you're mitigating that luck or, or you're getting choice over that luck. Um, so it feels less punishing or bad. Um, I think that's the important thing because those, those events are exciting, but what feels bad is when just something really bad happens to you that you had no control over. If you feel like you've got some control over it or some choice in it, um, then it can be, uh, then then I think it deserves to be in the game, and and it can and it can be it can be a positive to the game as opposed to a negative. Yeah, for sure. And I love how thematic uh, you you've made the set of watch system. Okay, as you take damage, you have access to less abilities because you're hurt, and it's harder to to do certain things. I, I'm doing something similar in, in that solo game where so you have to roll like certain events. You have to roll like a target number. You get have to you know have so many successes when you roll your dice. And as you take damage, you roll fewer and fewer dice. And so, as you know, if you're at full health, you're rolling a ton of dice, you're probably going to succeed on most stuff you do. And But as you get long, further along in the game, it's going to be harder because you're rolling less and less dice. But you could always stop and rest. You could get a med kit. You can do all sorts of things, but it's going to cost you time. And so you're having to balance out, okay, do I want to spend time in order to get healthy, in order to be able to roll more dice, is that going to help me long term, or do I just need to push through and, and try to get to the end? And hopefully, these you know few dice that I'm rolling, I'll, I'll get a little luckier than, than 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 not. And so I think it's also a cool way to give players some agencies. Like, okay, what are, what are we going to do with your your system? Which ability am I going to discard? Right, and and kind of decide. Okay, which yeah. one is the most valuable to me right now, or are going to be valuable in the next few rounds? As opposed to just saying, okay, you take five damage. So all right, I had 10, now I'm at five. And then what happens, yeah, we use the term like exhausted. So it's like you're pushing yourself 
too far and you're getting too tired, right? Where you can't perform that action anymore. You're using the last bit of your mana to shoot that fireball. And then you can't cast that spell anymore because, you know, you got so exhausted pushing yourself to do it. Um, but yeah, and then, and then what happens too is even more decisions in the game get more interesting because maybe I have a bad dice roll, but I have all of my abilities up and you have a great dice roll, but you only have two, you only have one ability left. And it's like, no, I really need this fireball back. I need to rest in camp so I can, you know, get recover that ability. And, and next time I go out on watch, I can use it again. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into playtesting. When you're playtesting one of these games, what are you looking for? What are you making notes about? What are you hoping players get out of it to tell you, okay, this game is on the right track? So I never have gone about, uh, I've never put together like a sheet like a feedback form. Like I've been enough at enough play tests and the first exposure play tests all at Gen Con and stuff. I've seen other designers who bring like sheets that they have players fill out that give it like score ratings and, and uh, things like that, you know, and ask for certain comments or certain questions. Um, I'm, I've never been that uh, precise, I guess, with my play tests. Um, I do have the advantage of having the game makers go to Philadelphia. We meet, we meet like every two weeks and we play, we're all a bunch of game designers and play test each other's games. Um, so I do have the benefit of having uh, a group of designers and people that are interested in play testing games that I trust. Um, and more importantly, that can play the game more than once and see how it changes. Right. Because one of the things you can see as a designer is, um, and I'm sure you've done this since you're working on your own game, you, you, you find a problem and you think that, and you change something in the rules or the mechanics that you think will address the problem and it makes it worse or doesn't solve it or makes the game feel worse or doesn't feel right or whatever. But you basically make a bigger problem because your fix wasn't the right fix. And you know that because you've played it a bunch of times and you've seen each iteration of the game. And when you have play testers who haven't seen that, sometimes you just need to, you know, when you need to rewind or go back a step and undo a rule it's helpful to have people that can play the game more than once and over and over again. Um, so that's certainly a helpful part of playtesting, I think. Um, but I don't have any particular questions that I go into it with. I mean, I certainly talk to playtesters afterwards, you know, so even if it's a first time playtester, the kind of stuff I'll ask, I mean, almost the first thing I always ask is sort of, what did you think? How did it feel? Um, because even if they've got some really precise, uh, feedback about one mechanism in the game that doesn't work or could be made better. I like to get a sense of, Oh, I didn't like this or, Oh, it felt too slow. Like those general feelings can be uh, the core, you know, some of the bigger, bigger problems are the bigger issues. You know um, I think when people are giving you feedback about a particular card or something, being like this card feels a little too strong. Then you're at a pretty good place because you're like past all the, the feel of the game and the, the core mechanisms and you're into like balance. So during my play testing, I sort of go off sort of how the game feels and a general feeling of the game, because if I get a lot of feedback on, on that first question and a lot of uh, critiques about it, I sort of feel like then I know that the core mechanisms aren't there yet and it's not, it's not smooth enough. And when I ask that question, people say, yeah, it feels pretty good. Or like, Oh, I really liked it then I know that the core stuff's good. And then I go into feedback about particular cards or actions or things like that. And then people will bring up stuff that may be broken or unbalanced. Um, then I feel like I'm past the hardest part of game design, which is sort of making sure that the core mechanisms and systems all work and make sense. 
Gotcha. Well, Mike, this has been awesome. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any closing thoughts for anybody maybe sitting there thinking, I want to design an adventure game or they're in the middle of one right now and kind of struggling through it? What would you what would you tell those folks? Sure. Well, um, the advice I give people who are interested in designing games, the, the first piece of advice I give is uh, don't be afraid to talk about your idea. Um, there's a lot of people online who will say, I have the best idea for a, a game. And then you say, what is it? And they say, well, I can't tell you because I, I don't want people to steal it or whatever. And, you know, number one, the first thing to know is you can't trademark a game mechanism. So, you know, Dominion sort of popularized deck building, but obviously there's tons of deck building games. Uh, you know, you roll a dice in Monopoly, but if Monopoly had a Monopoly on dice rolling, you know, we'd have a lot of problems in, in board gaming. Um, so... Don't be afraid to talk about your game. Uh, don't be afraid to play your prototype and game with a bunch of other game designers. In general, I feel our industry is very understanding. There's om- there's very, 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 very few instances or stories I've ever heard of anyone stealing uh, game ideas and mechanisms. So uh, don't be afraid to share with game designers because in general, we all want to help each other make games better. And a lot of times, uh, and if you're not doing that, you're just sort of missing out on uh, not only market research type stuff, but also just like core problems with your game that, that, that designers could find. So, you know, I like, there's there's this uh, convention around here called Unpub, which is where a bunch of unpublished games go to be play tested. And their motto is sort of fail faster. And I think that's a really important motto to have when you're designing your first game, which is know that you're going to fail, know that you're going to fail a lot. And the important thing is to get to the failure faster. So when you get to the failure and you know what's not working, then you can fix it. But if you're sitting behind closed doors, uh, there could be a huge problem that you don't even know is there. And if and if you're willing to talk about it and play test with other people, they could find it, you know, really quickly. Awesome. And I definitely agree. Mike, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. Tell me about that. It's a game called Alder Quest. Um, it's a game I helped design with Ryan Ward. Um, it's a highly competitive game. Um, our sort of tagline is it's it's a wintry mix of um, strategy um, and match three. So you have a match three board. So if you ever played games like Candy Crush, um, we have a set number of tiles and uh, you have an action economy with your heroes and you'll flip your hero cards taking actions and your heroes can sort of, there's a tournament field that's sort of some area control and you're, you're, the, the theme is you're, you're a bunch of critters competing in this contest trying to capture the most acorns of the other team. So, uh, you know, you'll take turns playing acorns, acorn points down. Uh, there can, you can set traps, so you're sort of, there's some bluffing as well. But you sort of, acorns slowly accrue on this, on this field, and you're moving your critters around to uh, take the acorns and tribute them to the sacred tree uh, to score points in this sort of animal Olympics, if you will. Um, but there's also a matching board, and your economy, sort of your mana or, or your currency of what you spend to do actions in the game, is based on matching tiles. So, um, again, it's this interesting push-pull and this decision between, do I spend all my actions on the matching board, making you know getting a bunch of tiles so I can have like a really strong turn on the field next turn, or, uh, or starving out my other opponent, or do I do half and half? Do I do some matching board stuff? Do I do some field stuff? Or do I really focus on area control and use all my actions, making sure I have enough minions on the board to control, find, and exploit other acorns and deliver them to the tree? 
Very cool. Well, Mike, again, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck yeah. with yeah. Alder Quest currently on Kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?